in. Now, we're in the book of Esther, and we're going to start this new series today. We're in an ex- exciting time to be in the book of Esther, because I really believe that the book of Esther speaks to our time. It really does. And, and as we've titled this series, When God Seems Absent, I think that the, that's such a powerful now title, When God Seems Absent. Because we've all gone through a time in our lives where we're now yearning to hear the voice of God, that we're looking to hear the voice of God, that we are just desperate to hear the voice of God. We look around us and we feel like God is silent. Today we're going to go through an introduction of the book and then uh, hopefully finish the first chapter. But as you've come this week, I want to invite you to put this on your calendar and make it out Wednesday nights. Because you do not want to miss now a a week as we go through the book of Esther. You see, the book of Esther talks about the providence of God. It talks about the protection of God. And it talks about the character of God. Through Esther, through the book of Esther, we see that God uses Esther to speak about His providence. To speak about His protection. To speak about His character. And that God has a master plan. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now and tell him, God has a master plan. God has a master plan. You see, in this book is one of the three books that is a post-exilic book in the Old Testament. Now I'm going to tell you what I meant by that because you're going to become an awesome Bible student by the end of today. You see, when the nation of Israel, after we read through the books of Chronicles, they were now led into captivity, right? Into the Babylonian captivity, but that Babylonian empire, because they disobeyed God, so God gave them over now to Babylon. Babylon uh, now uh, held captive all the Hebrew and all the Jews held captive in Babylon. That's where we get the books of Daniel out of there because Daniel came out of the captivity of Babylon now and he was the actually God used him in the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar. But the Babylonian Empire was now uh, uh, held hostage now or was taken over, it's a better words to say, by the Persian Empire. It was taken over by the Persian Empire. And during the Persian Empire, we see that Ezra the priest comes out, which we already studied the book of Ezra the priest, and he now takes out the people from the Persian now empire, and they go back to Jerusalem. And Ezra takes them out. That's the second exodus. Do you remember in the book of Exodus how they were in captivity, the nation of Israel? And Moses let them out of captivity. Now they go back into captivity in the Babylonian Empire, in the Persian Empire. Ezra takes them out of captivity again. And now Nehemiah also takes them out of captivity because some chose to stay. But then we see Esther come on the scene. And after they had been exiled, after they had been held captive, God used Ezra to take them out of captivity. God used Nehemiah to take them out of captivity. And then God used Ezra to take them out of captivity. You would ask yourself, why were they in captivity for so long? Because the Jews decided to stay in captivity comfortable when they could have gone back to Jerusalem. And I want to ask you, are you comfortable in captivity today? Are you comfortable in captivity today? Because some of us maybe came in today and and, and really knowing the Lord, but held captive by a certain thing that the enemy has in our lives. 
and we feel like we're in bondage to a certain sin or the, uh, the oppression of the enemy in our lives, and we just can't get out of this, and we're too comfortable to do anything about it, about it, and we stay comfortable in that captivity, they chose here to stay now exiled. Just think about it. They had an opportunity during the time of Ezra to go back to Jerusalem. They said, no, we're choosing to stay exiled. We're choosing to stay isolated. We're choosing to stay in sin. We're choosing to stay slaves of the enemy. And this was really a self-chosen pathway outside of the will of God. Have you chosen your own pathway outside of the will of God? Because when you choose your own pathway outside of the will of God, you're going to find yourself constantly in captivity because you chose that pathway. That's not the pathway that God had for you. You chose the pathway outside of God's will. Therefore, you find yourself consistently in bondage in life. And that is not God's plan for you. But we see that through Ezra, whose name means helper, that God used Ezra to take them out of bondage. God used Nehemiah. Ezra first took him out of bondage and built the temple. Then Nehemiah comes in, builds the walls, and takes a second group out. However, the majority decided to stay in bondage. If you had a choice to make today, if you had to make a decision today, whether you're going to choose the world or choose God's word or choose obedience, which decision would you make? Which choice would you make today? Are you going to choose the way of the world or the way of God. They had self-chosen this pathway outside of God's will and some still decided to stay in captivity. And you have to ask yourself, why would you choose in, to stay in captivity when God's called you to so much more? Why would you choose to stay in captivity? Because they were comfortable with the luxuries that they got in the Persian Empire? But then the Lord raises up Esther, right? And we see the, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit preserving now the nation of Israel through the book of Esther. And I want you to know, whatever situation you are in your life today, God wants to work through the Holy Spirit and preserve your, your life, preserve your family, preserve even your marriage, preserve your heart, preserve your spiritual walk. Even when you feel like nothing is taking place, God is working behind the scenes. God is working behind the scenes and He is faithful even when He seems absent. He is faithful. Even when He seems silent, God is still faithful. Sometimes we think, well, God seems absent right now. God seems silent. Is He really still present? God is still faithful when you think He's silent. God is still faithful when you think He's absent. God is still faithful when you still don't have all the answers. God is still faithful when your prayers have not yet been all answered yet. God is still present. He is present at every scene in your life. And that's what we have to remember. God is present at every scene, at every moment, at every event in our life. You would think, well, he's not present at this moment where I'm going through that valley. He's not present at this moment where I'm going through that hardship. He's not present through this moment where I'm going through the discouragement. God is present at every scene. God is present at every moment in your life. And, and what's interesting about the book of Esther is that God's name is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. But his redemptive plan is mentioned. What is every book in the Bible from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament? What do you see? You see the plan of redemption. That God wanted to rescue His people from bondage. That God wanted to save His, his people. 
until it culminated into where Jesus came to die for our sins and save me and you from our sins. The redemptive plan of Jesus coming for the salvation of the world is found on every single book of the Bible. And you can see it through Esther. Now his name, the name of God is not mentioned, but the fingerprints of God all, all, all over this book. And you might say, well, I can't hear the voice of God, but his fingerprints are all over your life. Because he remains faithful. You see, they might have been outside of God's will, but God said, they're not out of my care. They're out of my will. They're that prodigal nation, but they're not out of my care. Maybe right now you think, my family is out of God's will, but you are not out of His care. Maybe you think right now my son or my daughter is out of God's will, but they are not out of God's care. And that's what we learn. We learn the providence of God through this book. It teaches us the providence of God through this book. It comes providence from the same word that we know of, which means provide. And I, and I want you to know what that providence means because I don't think we really understand what providence means. We sometimes think that providence means that just God provides what we need today. But that's not what providence means. You know, providence, or even in the Latin word, and where we get uh, providentia, it means pro first. Let's study that word pro, which means now before or ahead of time. Before or ahead of time. Providence means before or ahead of time. And videntia, which means seeing, uh, it means to see. So before or ahead of time, to see. It means that God is seeing ahead of time. Isn't that what providence means? That God is seeing ahead of time. You might be outside of His will, they would ask themselves, the Jewish nation, but they were not outside of God's care because God is seeing ahead of time. God is seeing something that you cannot see. And He is always behind the scenes faithfully working. I mean, I think it's so important that we remember that because today in our world, we want to see mobilization. We want to see movement. We want to see activity. And we think that God is working when there's movement, when there is activity, when there's mobilization, when we're serving God. But what happens when we're not doing all those things? Is God still working? Absolutely. Yes, He is. He's working faithfully behind the scenes. And His master plan is still in motion. His master plan is still in motion because He's seeing ahead of time. Do you understand that through this book we're going to learn that, that God teaches how He met the nation of Israel? How He overcome and overcame all those attacks in which they were going to be attacked and dismantled and oppressed. And He went there to destroy those attacks. But it was the Lord seeing ahead of time. There's a few key verses that we learned through the book of Esther. And I want you to just go flip the page maybe. You can go to Esther chapter 4, verse 14. Because this is one of the most famous verses that we think about when we think about the book of Esther. And this is the verse and where you see that Esther is giving the, these words by her uncle Mordecai. And it says Esther 4, verse 14 this. For if you remain completely silent at this time, talking to Esther, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God will save the Jews from somewhere else if you do not speak up and if you keep silent, Esther. But if you and your father's house will perish, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. Who knows if God has raised you up right now for such a time as this. Who knows if God just maybe puts you at that job, at that place, at that position for such a time as this. Because God doesn't make accidents. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't relent. God doesn't change. God has put you somewhere for such a time as this. It was for a specific time that God raises up Esther for such a time as this. For a beautiful time. A time filled with purpose. Such a time as this one. It reminds me of Galatians chapter 4 verse 4. When Paul tells the church in Galatia, he says, But when the fullness of time, but at just the right time. Do you know that God's all about timing? That God is all about right timing. Maybe God brought you to a certain place for such a time as this, and He wants to use you there for such a time as this. Paul tells the church in Galatia, he tells them, but at the fullness of time, when the time had come, when just the right time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to save us from our sins. Do you understand that God is all about timing? That Jesus is all over the story of redemption? That His purpose is always in motion? That his mission is always to save people. That in spite of opposition, in spite of danger, God is working in unexpected ways. And I want to tell you that today. Maybe you think today you came in discouraged. But know this. God is working in unexpected ways. God is working in unexpected ways right now. You might not see it, but God is faithfully working behind the scenes in unexpected ways. And just because you can't see it doesn't mean he's not present faithfully orchestrating his master plan because he is the architect with his very own blueprints. You see, there are three major highlights and points that I want you to know before we even enter chapter 1 of Esther. And the first one, and if you like taking notes, write these down, please, because they're going to help you. They're going to encourage you today. The first one that we see as a common denominator through the book of Esther is, number one, His ways are not your ways. <laughs> Have you ever thought that, Lord, why don't you just do it this way? No, but His ways are not your ways. And we have to learn that the ways of protecting and providing, our ways of protecting and providing, your ways of protecting and providing, are not necessarily the ways that God will use to protect and to provide. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. When God has a master plan, in His master plan, Him behind the scenes, as He's faithfully orchestrating His plan, His ways are not your ways, His thoughts are not your thoughts. I'll tell you, there's going to be moments in your life where you think that God is protecting you this way and He's going to provide this way and He works in unexpected ways and He provides in a way that you never expected. He protects in a way that you never expected because He's seeing ahead of time. Because His ways are not your ways. Because His thoughts are not your thoughts. And maybe today you're asking yourself, Lord, but why am I here? Because His ways are not your ways. <laughs> because His thoughts are not your thoughts. And you find yourself at a crossroad, a crossroad asking yourself, but why, Lord? Because His ways are not your ways. Number one, His ways are not your ways. Number two, through the book of Esther, we learned that His way is perfect. <laughs> and I think we need to be reminded of that. Number one, His ways are not your ways. But number two, His way is perfect. 
His way is perfect. Can you find a lot of comfort in that and knowing that His way is perfect? You see, when you learn that His way is perfect, you know that He doesn't have to work according to your plan. Because our plans are imperfect plans, but His way is perfect. I think that we limit God when we say, Lord, we want you to work this way. When God can work so many other ways that we don't even know. Lord, we want you to do it now. We want you to do it this way. And we limit God because we don't know that His way is actually perfect. Not only do we limit God, but we also want God to work in our timing. Lord, do it now, Lord. No, but His way is perfect. That means His timing is also perfect. And God is never late. I'll tell you this. And God, I want you to write this one down. God is never in a hurry. God is never in a hurry. It seems like we're always running out of time. It seems like we're always in a hurry. It means that we seem that, that we don't want God to be late. <laughs> but God is never late and God is never in a hurry. His way is perfect. I'll tell you that. In Psalms chapter 18, verse 30, the psalmist said, As for God, His way is perfect. Psalms 18, verse 30, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield. He is a protection to all those who trust in Him. Well, think about how much comfort you can find in the season of your life where you think God is absent, where you think God is silent, and you realize, well, Lord, your ways are not my ways. Oh, Lord, your way is perfect. But number three, you also know through the book of Esther that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Now you would ask yourself, how is it that right now when I feel that God is selling, God is absent, all things are working together for good? Because God is faithfully working behind the scenes and He's maybe changing you before He changes your circumstance. And just because God is invisible doesn't mean He stops being invincible. <laughs> Understand that. God may be invisible, but He still is invincible in every moment of your life. And we're going to see that God never left them. He never left them through the struggle. He never left them through the pain. He never left them through the depression. He never left them through the, through the captivity. God was always present. And I think that we start to always define ourselves for a specific season of our lives. And we compare ourselves to other people. And we don't understand the way God sees us. Because God's never left our side. And, and we know that He values us and He's so willing to come and to rescue us so as long as we turn to the Lord. So as long as we turn to God. Right? This is an amazing book. Let's go ahead and read Esther chapter 1, verse 1. And let me pray. Lord, we thank You, God. As You've led us, Lord, just get an overview of Esther, Lord. And Lord, we thank You, God, for the seasons in our lives where we feel, Lord, that maybe You're not present, that You're not answering those prayers. But You are faithfully working behind the scenes, Lord. We thank You, Lord. Let us understand that Your ways are not our ways. Let us understand, Lord, that Your way is perfect. And that all things work together for good, Lord. And no matter what season in life we're in, Lord, those truths do not change. We pray this all in your name, in Jesus' name. And together we said, Amen. It says here in Esther chapter 1, verse 1, I came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, a Persian king here. This was Ahasuerus, who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So from Asia all the way 
to Ethiopia, Africa, some parts of Egypt, this king now, Ahasuerus, is reigning. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. Now, do you remember Shushan of Citadel was the same place where Nehemiah was a cupbearer in chapter 1 when he now was working under King Oxerxes, now during the Persian Empire? This was the very same place that this man was a king. Then the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officers and his servants, the powers of Persia and the meat and media, the nobles and the prince of the province being before him. So now he made now a uh, feast or a celebration for the Persia and for the, all the media. Now, when he's talking about the media, it's not the media that we think about today. <laughs> he's talking about the Pers and the Medes, right? And now what it says here, now the nobles and the princes and the province being before them, he called all the officers. He's about to make a feast. But this king, it's so important that we know this, how, how this book opens, because he's motivated by pride. And he has 120 provinces that report to him as he's motivated by pride, and verse 4 says this, And when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Man, I thought that we Hispanics knew how to throw big and long parties. And I quickly found that now this king threw a party lasting 180 days. Now, why did he throw a party lasting 180 days? It said that he threw a party in verse 4, a celebration lasting 180 days to show the riches of His glorious kingdom, the splendor of His excellent majesty for many days. What was He doing? He was showing off. See, a lot of times we're put in positions and we feel like we're motivated in our pride. We don't even realize it sometimes. But we want to show off. We do it for the likes. <laughs> Have you ever done something for the likes? Especially in our social media world and culture that we live in. Now this king invited all the important people and for 180 days he started to show off how rich he was, how prominent he was, how powerful he was. He wanted to show off his splendor. He wanted to show his glory. He wanted to impress people. He wanted to make people now uh, understand how strong he was. He wanted to flex his power. Yeah, we, I think we have to be careful when we start to live in a now mentality when we live to impress other people. Because when you start to live to impress other people, you're being motivated by your pride. By your pride. Right? And all he wanted to do here is to show off his now powerful empire. But what does the Bible tell us about pride? That pride goes before destruction. And an oddy spirit before the fall. When someone is motivated by pride, you know what's coming next is their fall. When someone has an oddy spirit, you know what's coming next is their fall. And I'll tell you this, in our world today, people think about pride as something as strength. Pride is not a sign of strength. Pride is a sign of weakness. Because you're so in love with self and you don't even realize it. You know what humility is? The world looks at humility as weakness, but humility, according to God's word, is a strength. And this king was motivated by pride. I think it's important that everyone that's in authority and all of us that are here today, we must realize that we are not first in command. I don't care if you're a husband, a wife, a leader, a manager, uh, uh, whatever it is you call yourself. You are not first in command. You are second in command because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And maybe he thought that he was ruling, but God was overruling with his master plan during this time. 
Verse 5, it says this, And when the days were complete, the king made a feast lasting seven days. He made an after party as if this party needed one. <laughs> it lasted 180 days. He made a, a second party lasting seven days. And the king made a feast seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small. So now, not only did he invite the leaders, he invited everyone in the court of the garden, the king's palace. And there were white and blue linen currents fastened with cords of fine linen, expensive equipment and purple and silver rods and marble pillars and the couches were of gold and of silver on a mosaic pavement of an al of alabaster turquoise in white and black marble and they served drinks in golden vessels each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance to the most expensive drinks available in abundance now according to the generosity of the king in accordance to the law, he, the drinking was not compulsory, for the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. And I want you to underline according to each man's pleasure. Now he throws an after party for seven days. He invites everyone from small to great. And now as he does this party, he wants to be completely generous, but with the ulterior motive, of course, his pride. And the king wanted to impress those that were his invited guests. He wanted to display his own wealth again, his own power, his majesty, his generosity. And it tells us in verse 9, And Queen Vashti, which was his queen or his wife, also made a feast for the woman in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. But what is one of the things that we see here that the king did? He, he served wine and he served drinks. And he said, you know what? Have as much as you want. Do as much as you pleasure, each man's pleasure. Now we come to a point in the Bible where it talks about drinking. <laughs> and I think it's important that we stop and pause and address this because today I was even talking to a pastor during lunch and we we're talking about how now more and more drinking has come into the church and is being tolerated more than ever before. Now the Bible doesn't command total abstinence from drinking, I'll tell you, but it does now emphasize it a lot through Scripture. To not drink, right? It, 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 what does it tell us, the Bible, to be sober-minded? Now, you can't be sober-minded when you're drinking all the time. You cannot be sober-minded when you're allowing that liberty to come into your life. It's been said before, when wine comes in, wisdom goes out. <laughs> when wine comes in, wisdom goes out. The Bible warns us against drunkenness. And, and the best way of avoiding to getting drunk is not drinking at all. Especially right here as he's promoting the social now style of drinking. A lot of people will tell me, well, you know what? Even, you know, if Jesus didn't want us to drink, why would he turn water into wine? Well, I'll tell you, the amount of alcohol that wine had was not as much as what we consume in the alcohol of today, of what people consume. But if you want to compare yourself to Jesus, <laughs> and you want to do like Jesus did, Jesus also, now, if you want to follow his example, also stayed up all night praying. Are you also doing that? <laughs> Jesus also served people. Jesus also sacrificed. Jesus also carried His cross. <laughs> I think it's so many times we want to quote the verses that, that maybe uh, give us room for liberty, but we don't quote the verses that let us really be more like Jesus. I had a Christian leader tell me recently, you know what, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Right? We can just do it. What does the Bible tell us about that? If you want to be in leadership, you want to serve. Proverbs chapter 31 verse 4 tells us this. It is not for King Zolomuel, Solomon telling now his son, we believe, 
It is not for kings to drink wine or for princes intoxicating drink. Intoxicating drinks. It's never a wise idea if you want the Lord to use your life to drink. Why? Because you're a testimony. But not only that, because it opens you up to something that maybe God doesn't have for you. And for this king, if the king had been sober at this point in his life, he would have never made this stupid request that cost him his marriage. You know how many headaches and heartaches people have gotten because they allowed just a little bit of a sip here and a sip there, and all of a sudden their family's a disaster. Now because of this, you see in verse 10 that he got drunk now, and he asked for a ridiculous request from his wife that cost him his marriage. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry, or when he was drunk now, on the seventh day, right, he was drunk. With the wine he commanded, Mehuman, Bidza, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zithar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown. I want you to bring me my wife and make sure she's wearing her royal crown in order to show her. He keeps wanting to show off. Her, his wife was beautiful. And it says, in order to show her beauty to the people and to the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. He, he wanted them to wear her crown. But the, the text tells us that he also wanted them to understand how beautiful she was sexually and to lust after her and to show her off. Some people believe that he was asking for her to only wear her royal crown. But look at what the queen does as she answers his request. And when we think about this request, this was a stupid request because it was the king now asking for a request from his wife because he was drunk. Because he was drunk. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command here, brought by the eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. He went from pride to drunkenness, to anger. You see what pride leads you to? It's your heart being filled with anger. Your heart being filled with a place where you become emotional. You become emotional. And it says here now, And the king said to the wise men who understood the times were the astrologers and all those that were wise and, and sat with him and by him. And it says, For all this was the king's manner towards all those who knew the law of justice, those closest to him being... Corsina, Shethar, Edamatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marasena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to the queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus and brought to her by the eunuchs. He, he put his counsel together and he said, you know, what am I going to do now for and to my wife? Because she did not obey what I told her in public. We see automatically that this was a woman that had some type of dignity and character. While her husband was angry and anger burned within him. It said that he became so angry in verse 12 that his anger was burning within him. Now you know what happens here? It was his pride that led him to that anger. Why? Because he had a bruised ego. He had a bruised ego. Because she said no to him and she challenged his authority. See, now, the Bible teaches us about, yes, the women being submissive to her husband, right? And it tells us that through Ephesians, right? But it, it never does the Bible teach 
that a woman should subject herself to her husband and in any area where it's going to cause her to compromise and to sin. Never does the Bible say that. Every command to submit, both men and women to submit at any human level, at any human level is conditioned by a higher obligation to obey God first. Yeah, you have a human level of obligation to submit to, but that is first now or overruled by a higher obligation to obey God first before man. And her refusal was evidence that she was a person of dignity, of, of, of character, that she did not want to do this. So he calls his astrologers, these wise men, and as he's angry now, He's showing this excessive content that he wants to get back at his wife in public because she now has despised and she has angered now the king. You see, it's interesting here because the king could build an empire, the king could build a city, but this king could not build his character. Be careful where you're building. Sometimes we want to build for our pride instead of building for our character. Are you, today, are you building for your pride or are you building for your character? Are you building for your ego? Are you wanting to protect your ego? He's wanting to protect his ego. He wants to protect his reputation instead of showing a type of character, a public character. You see, this was an emotional king now. The Bible tells us not to be led by emotion. Not to be led by emotion. You know what happens when you're led by emotion? You start to get yourself into trouble. And then... Proverbs 25, verse 28, it says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit, if you can't control your own spirit, it's like a city broken down without walls. It's dangerous. A city that has no walls is dangerous. A person that is very emotional is also dangerous. And guess what? I'll tell you this. You can't control your emotions if you're drinking and you eventually get drunk. You cannot do that. And then it becomes very dangerous. But the king had to do something to save his ego. He had to do something to protect his reputation. He had to do something to protect his pride. I want to tell you today, if you're doing things to protect your ego and your pride, stop. Stop. Because it doesn't honor God. It's only going to lead you to be hurt more. Stop trying to protect your ego. Stop trying to protect your pride. First look to protect your character and make sure it's godly. Start there. Because this, this king was a prisoner of pride was a prisoner of pride. You know how you become a prisoner of pride? When your life is filled with so much pride that you can't even tell. That you look at everything through a lens of self, of me. And it's so dangerous. Because pride feeds anger. Pride feeds anger. And, and as it grows, that anger only reinforces pride. Do you, do you understand that? I'm gonna, and I want to say that again because I want you to really remember that. Our pride feeds our anger. And as that anger grows, as that anger grows, it only reinforces our pride. That's what we have to ask the Lord, Lord, if, take this pride away from me and replace it with your heart, Lord. Warren Worsby said this, anger has a way of blinding our eyes and deadening our heart to what is good and noble. Anger has a way of blinding our eyes and deadening our heart to what is good and what is noble. Pride and anger will harden your heart. It will blind your eyes to everything that is good and everything that is noble, everything that is of God. And in verse 19, as we see here, verse, I'm sorry, 16, as we see here, is the response of what his advisors told the king. And Memukam answered before the king and the princess, Queen Vashti, 
had not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are all in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. She didn't only disrespect you, king. She also disrespected everyone in the kingdom. Look at how they're looking at this. For the queen's behavior will become known to all the women so that they will despise the husband in their eyes, their own husbands in their eyes. When they report, King Ahasuerus commanded his queen Vashti to be brought in before him, and she did not come. She is now an example to every woman now to disobey her husband because she publicly disobeyed her husband. So now we're going to get complete chaos throughout all kingdom because they're going to find this about this. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials, verse 19, that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, they will be now excessive content and wrath. Now look at these men. They were using this as an opportunity for their own agenda. And they're saying, you know what? She is going to be an example to these women of how, what it means to disrespect their husbands at home. If it pleases the king, verse 19, let a royal decree go out of, from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and of the Medes so that it will not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before the king Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Expel her from being queen and make it and write it down on the law of the Medes and of the Persians. If you read the book of Daniel, do you remember the law of the Medes and the Persians? That means that if a king would write down and, and, and sign a law according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, that he himself could not undo that law because it was done at that way. Do you remember when Daniel was praying three times a day and, 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 and those people that didn't like Daniel said, you know what, King Nebuchadnezzar, make a law that if someone prays three times a day or worships any other god besides you, that they're going to be thrown into the lion's den. He said, I'm going to sign it through the law of the Medes and the Persians. And then he loved Daniel so much because he signed it according to that law. He had to dispose of Daniel and deliver him to the lion's den. He said, we want you to sign it at this way, where you cannot undo this type of law. And when the king's decree, verse 20, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all the empire, for it is great. Now they're over here trying to now feed onto the ego and the pride of the king, saying, your, your empire is so great. All the wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. They come here with a self-interest and an agenda. And it says, and the reply pleased the king. Why did it please the king? Because they were feeding and stroking his ego and saying, you know what, king, your emperor is so great. We don't want nobody to challenge your leadership, your ruler, the way you rule, or anyone in anyone else's home. And the king did according to the word of Memukan. Then he sent letters to all the king's province, to each province. And look what it tells us. And it's to each province in its own script and to every people in their own language that each man should be master in his own house. He said everyone should be a master in their own house and speak the language of his own people. Now what is he doing? He's doing exactly what they told him. He's, he removes his wife from being queen. Why? Because he made a stupid request of saying, let her come and sexually show off her body that others would have lust after her. He started to make decisions and ask for requests that were now affecting his own home. But we see what happens from chapter 1 to chapter 2. There's a four-year gap, and this king now, in his pride, he goes and he tries to invade Greece to take it over, and he fails. He's defeated by them. So he comes back home defeated, wanting to go and take over Greece. And as he's defeated and he's over here, it feels completely now vulnerable to the defeat of Greece, he wants now a woman in his life. 
And he remembers, wait, I don't have a, a wife. I don't have a queen anymore. So chapter 2 is where we get introduced to how Esther comes on the scene now. Because there is a vacancy when it comes to the queen. Do you see how God is working throughout this entire plan to raise up somebody that would preserve the nation of Israel? Do you see how God is always working in your life in ways that you don't know that He's aligning the right people in the right place at the right time and you all of a sudden you see the Lord working you said, I had no idea that this has to be from God because there's no way that that person could have been there at that time and I would have ended up in the same place at the same time. God is sovereign. He is almighty. He is working in all the details. God is in all the details. You say, how, how could it be that I came in and now this situation has opened up, this opportunity has opened up because God is in all the details. How is it that when I was looking for a job, you know, the Lord provided this when He closed the door in one and He opened up in another one because God is in all the details. You see, God is in all the details here in chapter 2 of Esther. Let's read just the beginning verses of Esther chapter 2 because Ahasuerus wants a new queen. And look what he does. And after these things, when the wrath of the king of Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what, he, what she had done and what he had been decreed against her. He said, well, I can't take my word back because I signed it according to this law. And the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Go look for the best beautiful virgins in the entire empire and let's see who can now be the queen for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the woman's now quarters under the custody of Haggai. Haggai was the one that would coordinate this. It was like an entire competition to see who would become the queen. But the Bible tells us that as they describe this and they would get uh, all these women... The historian Josephus that writes about these events in history books said that it was close to 400 women and only one would get elected to be now the queen. But they would be taken from their families against their will sometimes. And it tells us here, the king's eunuch's custodian of the woman and let beauty preparations be given to them. They would, they would ought to be prepared for an entire year before they were in the presence of the king. He prepared them for an entire year to be in the presence of the king. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashtai. These things please the king, so he did so. He said, you know what, this sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. Start gathering all 400 women. Let's see who I like. And every night he would spend a night with one woman. And after that he would tell her to leave. But if he liked her, she would be the one that was going to be the queen. And those 400, those other 399 that were now dismissed, could not go back to their own lives. But they were now locked in in the palace. And they had to live basically as widows of the king. He would never ask for them ever again. So they would live in such grief and such sorrow their entire lives. But look what the Bible tells us here in verse 5. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Now we got Mordecai on the scene who's going to be a very important character in the book of Esther. Mordecai here. Now his name means little man. <laughs> When I found out that his name means little man, it brought me so much comfort that God still uses little men. <laughs> it means little man. But look how God uses Mordecai. It doesn't even say that he had a, 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 any type of connection. It didn't say the God of Yahweh, anything of that. But God uses Mordecai in this book. And it says here, there was a certain Jewish man, Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, uh, uh, of here, Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamin. He was at the tribe of Benjamin. Kish, or who, the word who, had been carried away from Jerusalem with 
the captives who had been captured was Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So he was part of all this captivity. Mordecai. He was one of them that was carried away. And Mordecai brought up, here it says, Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and this young woman was lovely and beautiful. And her father and her mother died, and Mordecai took her as his own daughter. You see how the Lord is preserving here now Esther. She was lovely and beautiful. See, the word lovely and beautiful says that she was exceedingly beautiful, and God was going to raise her up. It's amazing to be able to see how God doesn't only raise up men, but God also raises up women in the Bible. And he has a special place for God using women in the scripture. And it says that Mordecai brought Esther because Esther was under his custody. He raised her. Her mother and her father had passed away. And, and, and we know here that God's about to raise her up at this very important time and for such a time as this. It was God's timing that Esther would be raised up. That Esther would be involved. I love what A.B. Simpson says, a famous preacher. God, he says, God is preparing his heroes. And when the opportunity comes, he can fit them into their places in a moment. And the world will wonder where they came from. God is preparing his heroes. And, in, and when the opportunity comes, he can fit them in their places in a moment. And the world will wonder where they came from. You don't think that the world wondered where Esther came from. The Jewish nation wondered. God is not surprised by these circumstances. God is not surprised that you're, by your circumstance right now. God is not surprised that you're desperate for an answer right now. He's working behind the scenes. He is seeing ahead of time. He's not surprised. He, he knows that you're desperate. He knows you're, he's, that, 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 you're, that you're yearning for more of Him, that you want some answers. But God is aligning here through Mordecai, through Esther. He's aligning all the people to be in the right place at the right time. And we see now that Esther comes in the scene whose name means now Myrtle. Her name in the Persian name is Esther, means, Persian, it means star. In the Hebrew, her name means Myrtle. And you might not understand why Esther is going to come in the scene. You might understand why you're, not in that, why you're in that position still. You might not understand why you're in that place still. But God is in all the details. God is in all the details. Sometimes we think, Lord, why am I still in this place? Why am I still in this season? Why am I not there where I thought I was going to be at by this time in my life? Where God is in all the details. And God has a purpose for that place that you're in right now. And God has a plan for that position that you're still in right now. Not only does he have a purpose for that place, but he also has a plan for that position. Because God does nothing on accident. God does nothing on accident. It is the presence of God here who's orchestrating this. And it is, he is the architect with his very own blueprint. I think that we can step back and look at our lives and say that is incredible that throughout the entire time, God was still there. God was still there. And he's going to raise up Esther for such a time as this. And he wants to raise you up for such a time as this. But understand this, church, please. That number one, his ways are not your ways. That his way 
is perfect. And also that all things work together for good. I'm going to leave you with three last points as we finish. And the first one that we see through the book of Esther is that we learn what it means to be still. Maybe today God wants you to be still. Be still. Why? Because God is working while you're waiting. Be still. Number one, be still. God is working while you're waiting. Be still. We're going to see that God is working while Esther is there during that 12-month period waiting. God is working while she was waiting. Number two, be quiet. (laughs) Wait, some of us don't even want to listen to that one. I wanted to write the first one, but I don't want to write the second one. (laughs) First, be still. Number two, be quiet. (laughs) Why? Because He speaks clearly when you're silent. He speaks clearly when you're silent. Be quiet. And number three, be convinced. Be convinced of what? That He brought you here for a reason. That That He has you here tonight for a reason. Be still. God is working while you're waiting. Be quiet. He speaks clearly when you're silent. And be convinced. He brought you here for a reason. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Esther, Lord, that you raised up at a, a such an opportune time. Do we just set the stage today, Lord? And we see that the stage is ready for you to, Lord, raise up your heroes. That at the right opportunity that you're going to move them in. And the world will wonder, where did they come from? Men and women of God that you have been preparing. You've chosen, Lord, to stand in the gap like Esther is going to do. To rise to the occasion like Esther is going to do. But we pray that we would be only courageous and obedient enough to do that. Let us stand in the gap for our families. Let us rise to the occasion for our children for such a time as this. God has called us to this time. In Jesus' name, and together we said,